Well, we've all been to these, but maybe not quite like this one. It was what a young Jewish girl had been taught to hope and to dream for, and that is to arrive finally at her own wedding, to be wed to a man who would be the guarantee of her future, the man with whom she would share the struggle for daily life, the struggle for daily provision, with whom she would have sons and daughters and build their own little miniature kingdom in their own home. And this wedding would have been delightful. It would have been long. There were lots of family, lots of friends, lots of food, lots of wine. It was held in the the beautiful area of the northern Mediterranean coastal area of Israel, The air was full of hope, full of joy, full of promise. But we have to understand the immediate surrounding world of this young woman that she was living in. It was not easy, and to understand what her wedding would have been like, we need to go back 200 years before she was born. A guy by the name of Seleucius Nicator, he was one of Alexander the Great's generals, and he formed an empire in the late 4th century B.C., which came to be known as the Seleucid Empire, which controlled then ancient Israel after the exile. Rulership was passed down through the Seleucid family, and it it culminated in the Syrian Seleucid named Antiochus Epiphanes, who oppressed Israel horribly, very abusive. The Maccabean revolt of the mid-2nd century B.C. gave Israel eventually some autonomy, and a new line of rulers, they were called the Hasmoneans, And they formed the Hasmonean dynasty, and they actually expanded Israel's territory by about 100 B.C. But right when the Hasmoneans were really trying to create a new independent Israel, two things happened that became the death blow to an independent rule. First of all, a a bloody civil war in Israel broke out between two Hasmonean princes, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, and Hyrcanus sided with the Sadducees, Aristobulus sided with the Pharisees, and so a war broke out, very, very violent, very bloody, and right when that happened, the second kind of death blow to an independent Israel was that the Roman Empire was growing in the Mediterranean, and the Roman general Pompey, he, he saw this civil war happening in Israel, and he said, this is the time to invade. And so right in the middle of the Civil War in 63 B.C., the Romans pretty much just walked in and took over. And from that point forward, Israel was under Roman control through hired client kings that that worked for Rome, the most famous of whom was Herod the Great. And right when this Civil War was at its height, right when the Seleucids lost power while the Hasmoneans were gaining power and eventually fighting amongst themselves, when all this was beginning and there was turmoil Politically and economically, a baby girl was born in the northern territory of Asher. Baby girl that we left back at her wedding. This would be a precious little girl whose father, her name was, his name was Phanuel, and he named her after a hero of the Old Testament, the mother of Samuel, Hannah. But they used the Greek version and just called her Anna, which means grace or favor. And so Anna grew up in a time of political tension, of civil war, of blood, of violence. She was a young lady when Rome invaded during the civil war. And like all Jewish women, she was given to a young man to be married. And this was a means, supposedly, to secure her future. Her husband would provide her family, provide her a home, give her children who would provide for her in her old age. 
And so their future was bright. They would be beginning family life together, probably at a very young age to our thinking, but very normal for their customs. 14, 15, 16 years old, Anna would have been at her wedding. And so we now come back to this beautiful wedding, perfect weather on the Mediterranean coast, outdoors, lots of food, lots of wine. Anna and her husband-to-be would have been betrothed for at least a year by now, and they're eager to begin sharing their life together, the joy of starting this new family. The whole community would have been there. Every evening for an entire week was just devoted to celebrating and to feasting. Her husband would have been working hard either in his father's business or establishing his own business or, or working on the family farm or ranch. She would be working hard to establish their home. The future was good in an Israelite family who loved the Lord and received blessing from him. And so their life began. But then it all ended just seven years into their marriage when Anna was probably 21. Everything changed when her husband died. No future, no inheritance, no security, no family life. And in ancient Israelite culture, Anna went from being a rising star to a destitute nobody. She went from somebody that the Lord seemed to be blessing to somebody that people would say the Lord has turned his back upon. And now she went from being an excited young woman to a, a, a really the most heartbroken member of society, a widow. And now she's not even identified anymore as somebody's wife. She goes back to just being the daughter of Fanuel. Normally, she would have remarried, and that would have been the normal course of events, but in God's sovereign plan, young Anna never again had a husband. She had a different calling. She had a different purpose, a unique plan from God that meant giving up all earthly pleasures and hopes and focusing instead on serving the Lord and the Lord alone. She lived in a tumultuous time. She lived through civil war. She lived through the death of her husband. She lived through the takeover, takeover of Israel by Rome. She lived a life beset by uncertainty, by danger, by transfers of power, by personal life-altering tragedy. And she went from being somebody to, societally speaking, being a nobody. And yet, Anna, for us, paints such a picture of joy and peace in the Lord. And she's found in just three verses in Scripture. And that's our text for tonight, Luke chapter 2, 36-38. Luke 2, 36 through 38. And now when we meet Anna, she's not a young woman at a wedding eager to begin her life. She is now a very, very old woman. And she will continue for us our series, Strength in the Desert, looking at how saints of the Bible learn to wait on the Lord. Now, Anna was at the point in her life now when we meet her where all the usual pleasures of earth all the joys she could hope for, these are all removed. They're, they're gone. She's far past waiting on a husband. She likely has no children. She was past waiting for that blessing. And at her age, she may have literally been the last living member of her family. I have had the privilege of knowing a lot of, of very older saints. And one of the saddest things I see these older saints go through is, is to weepingly say, all of my friends are dead. All of my family is dead. That's a hard place to be, and that's where she was. And she is now literally only waiting for one thing. She has one thing left, and she is waiting for the birth of Israel's Messiah. And so our lesson on waiting from Anna this evening is Anna says, 
Be delighted to be nobody. Be delighted to be nobody. While you wait on the Lord, let it be okay to be the lowest of the low of the low. Now, it's interesting to me that her biography is one of the shortest in Scripture, and yet her life has left such a fragrance to us, such an example. She is well-remembered. She certainly lives up to her name as a woman of grace, a woman of favor. And now we catch up to her in the temple in Jerusalem when baby Jesus was just about 40, 41 days old. He had been circumcised a week after birth and then waited the prescribed 33 days, according to Leviticus 12, for ritual purification. And he was to be presented at the temple to be dedicated to the Lord as the first son who had opened the womb of his mother Mary, according to the law. And so at the temple, an old, old man, Simeon, a a faithful Jew who was spending his final days, like Anna, doing one thing, waiting for the Messiah, he comes up in verse 26 of Luke chapter 2, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so on this glorious day, the Spirit of God has led him now to the temple, And his eyes have searched the crowds, and he sees this young couple holding the newborn baby Jesus. And then Simeon gave a a spirit-inspired song to the Lord while holding Jesus in his arms. And he offered a blessing to Mary as well. In the second half of verse 34, he said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And right then, at this moment, we get our first and only glimpse of Anna in all of the Bible. And here she comes. In verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Well, Anna's going to have some wonderful offerings for us tonight. And just to kind of organize our thoughts, I want to focus on Anna's losses and then Anna's loves and then finally Anna's lesson Anna's losses, her loves, and her lesson. Let's go through her losses, first of all, just so we understand the low position that she's in. The first loss that she had would be an earthly family. An earthly family, almost invariably, a young widow would remarry fairly quickly and begin having children. But not Anna. And remember, this wasn't just a loss of a relationship. She didn't have the option to say, well, since I'm not going to be married, I think I'll focus on my career, or I think I'll go overseas with Peace Corps, or I think I'll do this or that. It wasn't just loss of a relationship. It was, it was a major hardship. And widows didn't have an easy time in Jesus' day, despite the protections of the law. They were often neglected. They were often exploited. They were often even despised. They were exploited even by the religious leaders of Israel. Mark chapter 12 tells the famous story of a widow giving to the temple fund all that she had to live on. And you recall that Jesus was sitting opposite the temple treasury and and she watched as this poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, the, the last of all of her money. 
And yes, the, the widow was generous, but the point of the story is not you should be generous like the widow and give all that you have. The point is that she was a victim of spiritual abuse. In the passage right before this, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. The widow who gave her last penny was tricked into thinking that maybe she could please God by giving the rest of all she had. And she was fleeced by the greedy temple leaders who devour widows' houses. And so in Jesus' day, to be a widow was hard. Even those that were supposed to protect you didn't often protect you. A widow with no family to look after her look after her was often a, vid- a, a victim of society, often taken advantage of, often forgotten. And all Anna had to hang on to was the brief memory of a short marriage so many decades earlier. Now, verse 37 says that she was 84, but most agree that this should be better translated, that she had been a widow for 84 years. So she would be about 100 years old at this point, maybe even older, depending on when she got married. And the text puts great stress on her age. It says that she was advanced in years, then as a widow until she was 84 or had been a widow for 84 years. She was advanced in years, and and she is somewhat similar to Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, who was advanced in years as well, but God gave Elizabeth not only a husband, but gave her children late in life, but Anna didn't get that blessing. She didn't get any kids. She didn't have a husband. And so she didn't have an earthly family. Second loss, she endured an earthly future. Having a husband, having children, that wasn't just for emotional fulfillment. This was a financial necessity. That was your retirement plan. Your husband was your immediate security, and your children were your long-term security. It was your long-term retirement IRA. But Anna's future was cut short. When her her husband died, her immediate provision was cut off, and, and not having children in all likelihood, her future was cut off. Now, it may be that the bride price that had been given to her husband was returned to her, but it wouldn't have been much. More than likely, it went to pay off her husband's debts or just went back to her father, Fanuel, according to tradition. She would go from potentially being viewed as the Proverbs 31 woman who is the manager of a successful household that's developed over the course of years. She would go from that dream to instantly being downtrodden as the most humiliated member of society. Her earthly future was gone. She had another loss, her earthly reputation. Her earthly reputation. You know, I've spoken to a lot of widows and widowers, and very often I've heard the difficulty of feeling like you're a lower member of society, that you don't belong to the same club that you used to. And we understand that. But not only was there the stigma of being a widow, but Luke points out that she was from the tribe of Asher. Now, why is that important? Well, the official lands of Asher were in the fertile coastal territory of the north from Mount Carmel up even all the way to the city of Sidon and beyond on the coast, and and it went all the way to the western slopes of the Sea of Galilee. So it it was beautiful country. It was a wonderful place to live. In fact, it was so wonderful that the tribe of Asher had a had a reputation for not wanting to be involved with anybody else's life. 
They didn't have a great reputation. In Judges chapter 4, when Israel's existence was being threatened, the judge Deborah, she stirred up Barak to organize Israel for war against Jabin, the king of Canaan. But Asher sat back and didn't help. They just said, we'll just wait and see what happens here. And eventually, Asher was, was taken in by the Phoenicians, by the religious and the cultural influences. And like any nominal believer, they were more impacted by their culture than they impacted their culture in return. And they essentially became Phoenician. Officially, Asher was considered one of the lost tribes that were dispersed when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So essentially, they ceased to exist as a tribe for all intents and purposes. But there was a small band of faithful Asherites who would come to Jerusalem to observe the first official Passover in many generations after that invasion. There were a few who were left behind, and they humbled themselves to be faithful to the Lord again. Second Chronicles 30 records that. And it was from those faithful leftover Asherites that Phanuel and then his family with Anna, their descended, But no one forgot that the tribe of Asher was the tribe you couldn't count on. And that was a culture in which reputations were made and lost over a period of centuries, not over a period of years. And so being from Asher wasn't something you necessarily bragged about when you came to Jerusalem in the southern area. Not only that, she is a prophetess. She has been given a special task by God to declare and to interpret God's message. There's no record of a special call of any kind. It could be that she's just simply so immersed in the scriptures that she developed a following of students, as will often happen. Most often, the task of prophet was given to men, but there are other women in scripture given this task. It's always in very unique circumstances, by the way. Now, when we see prophet or prophetess to us, we might think, well, that's somebody who's revered, somebody who is is respected. But when Jesus is born, Israel is apostate. They have no appetite as a nation for the word of God. They have no appetite for truth. It's It's a religious environment largely hostile to the notion of Messiah. So prophetess doesn't mean she walked around with respect. It's always interesting to me when I meet somebody and they ask what I do for a living, and I say I'm a pastor. Most of the time, they kind of go, oh, that's kind of weird. You, you see the look on their face like, wow, what happened to your life? And say, oh, I'm sorry. I've actually had people say, oh, I'm sorry. You, you couldn't get a real job? Was that, was that what happened? And so to say I'm a prophet or I'm a prophetess, try going to Starbucks and saying that today. So it doesn't mean she was necessarily respected. She was just the crackpot old woman who wandered around the temple speaking the word of God. Not necessarily something to be commended. So at some point, Anna had left her home territory in the north. and Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, she came to Jerusalem to await the coming Messiah. She's lost an earthly family. She's lost her future. She's lost an earthly reputation. She is very much the epitome of the godly widow of 1 Timothy 5, verse 5, that she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So she's had losses, big, big losses. They're considerable. They're unrecoverable. But look at her loves. And there's five of them. And they really read like what, what every Christian should aspire to. While she waited... She engaged in her loves. First, she loved the word of God. 
She loved the word of God. And how do we know this? Well, she's called by God to proclaim his word. Almost very certainly, it is not in the sense that she's a prophetess of giving new revelation. How do we know that this is the case? She's not giving new revelation. We're in the middle of the 400 silent years. And it is John the Baptist alone who will have the privilege of breaking the silence of God. And so Anna isn't giving new revelation. What is she doing then? There's only one other option. She's proclaiming the already written word of God. We don't know to whom she was proclaiming, very possibly just to anyone who would listen. Maybe she had a little Bible study that met in the corner of the temple courtyard. Maybe she just stood at the gate and, and read the scriptures. We don't know. But we do know what it was she was proclaiming. She was proclaiming her joy that Messiah was coming, that the Messiah was going to be born. He was coming to Israel in her lifetime. And she would speak to anybody who would listen long enough to look for Messiah, to look for Israel's hope. Now, how do we know that she loved the word of God? Well, Luke uses a phrase to describe who these people looking for Messiah were, including Anna, looking intently for the coming of Christ. Verse 38, those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. That's not just a phrase that's thrown in there randomly. It's a very specific reference to one verse in the Old Testament, and that is Isaiah 52, verse 9. Isaiah 52, 9 says, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And it's right in the middle of this glorious poem in which God proclaims that he will reign someday in Jerusalem, that he will come. The ends of the earth will see the salvation of God right in the middle of this. And how will this happen? How will salvation come to Israel? How will salvation come to all the earth? What is the redemption of Israel? I said this is Isaiah 52, verse 9. What is that right before? It's right before Isaiah 53, the description of Messiah who would be pierced for our transgressions. So to Anna, the redemption of Jerusalem wasn't just about saving a city from Roman oppression. It was about saving a nation from their sin, bringing the Redeemer of Israel who would save his people from their iniquity. She knew and she certainly loved the word of God because it pointed her to Christ. She had a second love. She loved to worship in song. She loved to worship in song. She was constantly in the temple. She was there night and day, This is a phrase used to explain that this was her daily task. This is what she did every day was to worship. And depending on the day, depending on the season, depending on the festival, the temple choir would be gathered to sing God's praises. She was literally in the musical center of Israel. She was in the place where all the best music happened. Verse 38 says that she came up to Jesus at that very hour, meaning right when Simeon was meeting with Mary and Joseph. And what was Simeon doing? He was either saying, most commentators think he was singing the song of verses 29 through 32, mostly made up of quotes from the book of Isaiah, by the way. And more than one commentator has speculated, and I would agree with them, that Anna because she was influenced by the Holy Spirit in the same way that Simeon was, that Anna sang this song with Simeon. But even if we can't know for certain that that she did that, we do assume that she was in full agreement and fellowship with the song. And Anna was said to be in prayer night and day. It's important for us to understand something, that for the Israelite, prayer and singing went hand in hand. 
These were not two radically separate events. They're very, very closely related. For example, Psalm 42, verse 8 says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and his night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Let me repeat that. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Grammatically speaking, prayer and song are what's called appositives. They're in apposition, not opposition, but apposition to one another. You don't have to remember that. It just means that they are self-defining, that one defines the other and the other defines the other. So the prayer is a song and the song is a prayer. Look, even today, Orthodox Jews will often sing their prayers to the Lord. That's not a bad idea. She loved worship and song. Because for her, it was a prayer. Speaking of which, this is her third love. She loved prayer. She loved prayer. Luke reports that she was worshiping in prayer, quote, night and day. Now, we say day and night. What's the difference? Well, night and day was a colloquial expression, a, a local cultural expression to mean going beyond the normal work day of sunrise to sunset. In other words, night and day, when you're doing something night and day, it means you started before dawn. You started before the first light came. She was in the temple in prayer while it was still dark. And she's really the epitome of what Psalm 57 and Psalm 108 speak of, in which the worshiper says, I will awaken the dawn. How? With my prayers. That I will bring the sun up, so to speak, with my own prayers. With my prayers, I bring in the new day. Her constancy in prayer is exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he commanded the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. A short little phrase, but packed with power. And there's so many places in the New Testament where you can see the heart of the Apostle Paul to pray without ceasing. The God's people should be a people in constant prayer. Their prayer isn't something you schedule in your day. Prayer is something that permeates your day. To, to live a life in which prayer is not only a habit, but just naturally fills in the spaces between any other thoughts. And just a, a short survey of the Apostle Paul shows us that, that for him, prayer is a fundamental part of everyday life. It's like breathing. It's like eating. It's like drinking. Second Thessalonians 1.11, to this end, we always pray for you. Romans 1.10, always in my prayers. Colossians 1.3, we always thank God. Colossians 1.9, we have not ceased to pray for you. Romans 12, verse 12, be constant in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Everything by prayer. And Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. There is a discipline to it. There is a push. There is a drive. There is a motivation. It's anything but passive. And so Anna was continuing steadfastly in prayer for decades. I've had people say, I have trouble praying for longer than five minutes. Pray for 50 years. That's what Hannah's been doing. But this word for prayer specifically means petitionary prayer, a pleading prayer, a prayer of supplication. She's asking for something. There are other words for prayer used in the New Testament that just means any communication with God. This isn't one of those. She's asking for something. And because she's so intent on this request, she often accompanies her times of prayer with fasting. 
Fasting is never commanded to the New Testament believer, but to be honest, it's not commanded because it's assumed. It is assumed. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Fasting isn't a means to manipulate God. You don't get your way with God by by fasting. But it is associated in Scripture with a humble time of self-denial in prayer. It means to, it's the idea of lowering yourself before God, of making Him bigger and yourself smaller. Prayer is associated with fasting in Scripture for a variety of reasons, and all of them are intense. They're always intense in nature. You, You don't find in Scripture an example of somebody fasting about their family vacation that's coming up. That doesn't happen. They're intense. Let me give you a couple of examples. Fasting and prayer in the midst of God's discipline, in the midst of God's chastening. 2 Samuel 12, verse 16, King David fasted on behalf of his sick baby son. He was laying on the ground all night long in prayer and in fasting. But the illness and the death of the child was the discipline of God on David for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. But, but he fasted and he prayed in the midst of God's discipline. We see an example when you're in the time of need of protection, where you need protection. Before he led a group of exiles back to Israel from captivity, Ezra proclaimed a fast. For those returning, he says in Ezra 8, verse 21, quote, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves. Fasting and prayer in the time of crisis. While still in Persia, Nehemiah received news that the wall of Jerusalem had been broken down, the gates were burnt to a crisp, And in Nehemiah 1, verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How about in prayer for the sick? Here was King David's intense prayer for his sick friends. Psalm 35, 13 and 14 says, When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. And so it's a time of sadness, a time of beseeching the Lord, even while his friends were sick. How many of you have fasted and prayed for your sick friend? How about during the time when looking for gospel ministry success, when looking for the gospel to to go forth. The elders at the Church of Antioch, as recorded in Acts 13, fasted and prayed before commissioning their first missionaries, who happened to be Barnabas and Saul, soon to be known as Paul. Later in Acts 14, Luke mentions that Paul's missionary party, as they would appoint elders in each church, they would fast and pray in committing them to the Lord that the success of the gospel was so important to them that they would deny themselves, they would fast and pray for the gospel to take hold. How about in a time when you need to be rescued? When you need to be rescued, when the prophet Daniel, as an exiled old man in Babylon, now taken over by Persia, when he read in the prophet Jeremiah that the time of exile would be 70 years, and he's doing the counting, and he's in about year 67 of that 70 years, Daniel 9, verse 3 says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And that's right when you're nearing the answer to prayer. Usually we kind of slack off. If we see the answer, we kind of back off a little bit. Not him. He intensified his prayers. And so fasting and prayer... In Scripture, it seems to always go during in a time of, of intense need. 
But for Anna, her fasting was a regular occurrence. It was a habit. In fact, the text says literally in Greek that she worshipped with fastings, plural, over and over and over again. It was her normal routine. And what was it that she was pleading so intensely with God for? What was she pleading for? Well, it's not so much what she was pleading for, it's for whom she was pleading. We've already seen in verse 38, for the redemption of Israel, for Messiah. And her prayer has been answered. Listen, all of us know the disciples' prayer that the Lord taught. that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're in a prayer competition for who can pray that prayer the best, Anna has blown us all out of the water. Don't raise your hand, because I don't think any of you would. But how many of you have fasted and prayed for the coming return of Christ? She did it all the time. She wanted to see Messiah so badly that she loved to be in prayer. Frankly, it's hard to get Christians to pray for earthly things, but she was fasting and praying for something heavenly, for something much bigger How Anna must have loved to be in prayer, specifically in prayer for the coming of Christ. Anna was one of those saints who probably sometimes you would have trouble distinguishing if she was speaking to you or speaking to God because prayer was so usual and common for her. She prayed because she loved the coming of Christ, which, of course, is her fourth love. She loved Christ. She loved Christ. Now, I find it ironic that Anna has this deep abiding love for a Messiah that she has never met until this moment. But the irony is is that all she had to go on was what Scripture already said. And here she is, just this old woman, a humble widow, who knows the Word of God, and because of the Word of God, she knows and loves Messiah so much. But the irony is, is that Jesus criticized the scholars of Israel, the Bible teachers of Israel, for not recognizing him, not worshiping him as Messiah. And he said in John 5, 39, he said that they thought that their knowledge of Scripture was winning them points with God, that they would have eternal life because they were such good Bible students. But he told them they missed the whole point of the Scriptures. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This poor old widow, she got it. The Bible scholars of Israel missed it. But Anna, knowing the first testament, remember, to her it wasn't the Old Testament, it was the only testament. It led her to a love for the coming Messiah, the one that she knew from Isaiah 53 would be pierced for her transgressions, the one who would save his people from their sins. She had just heard Simeon say to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, referring to the coming death of Christ. She loved the Lord Jesus Christ before she even knew his name. She didn't have the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. She didn't have the book of Revelation. She didn't have the glorious uh, exclamation of Colossians 1. She didn't have the glorious description of Christ of Hebrews 1. She didn't have all of that. She had the Old Testament. And yet she was given this unique gift from God of apparently knowing that she would see him before she died, along with Simeon. And what was her natural response to seeing Jesus after decades of prayer for waiting for Messiah? Verse 38, she began to give thanks. To to give thanks, this is a very specific word here in the New Testament that is used and reserved solely for giving thanks to God. 
This word is never used to speak of giving thanks to another human being. And it implies that there is a certain type of thankfulness that's reserved only for God as the ultimate provider of all things. For example, if someone gives you a meal, you say, thank you. Then you say, thank you, God. Because God is the ultimate provider of all things. And this is amazing. There's just one word in Greek here that takes five English words to express that she was giving thanks over and over and over again. She didn't walk up and say, oh, look, it's Jesus. Isn't that nice? She was repeating herself. She began. She was continually giving thanks. And by the way, it's a verb form that indicates she wasn't just giving thanks out loud. She was giving thanks within herself. Her thankfulness wasn't from duty. It was welling up from within Have you ever made your children say thank you and you know that it's from the heart of a reprobate hypocrite who doesn't mean it? (laughs) Say thank you. Thank you. This isn't what this is. This is heartfelt gratitude, praying for something for decades and finally to have one moment. She had one moment with Christ. The Lord had reduced her life to this one moment, waiting on the coming of the Messiah, and in this one little moment, her wish, her hopes, her dreams, they're fulfilled. I don't think I've personally known Christians who are waiting for Christ so intensely, except one kind, dying Christians. Dying Christians. Oh, I wish I had the intensity to wait for Christ like a dying Christian, with nothing else to live for. But Anna, true to the pattern of a genuine believer in Christ, she had one more love. Because of her love for Christ, she also had a love for those who need Christ. She had a love for those who need Christ. After having her prayers answered, she went back to work. The end of verse 38, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is very interesting to me, who God chooses to be essentially the first Christian missionary. You remember who the original recipient is of the Gospel of Luke? A high-level Roman official named Theophilus who had come to faith in Christ very likely through the Apostle Paul's ministry, and he needed encouragement. In fact, he needed assurance that his his faith was sound, that God really would save a non-Jew who also happened to belong to the same army who crucified Christ. And so Luke's Gospel is just filled with accounts of what we might call the least likely people. When Jesus was born, the angelic hosts appeared to announce the birth of the king of the world to a bunch of shepherds. Jesus called as the future leaders of the church and incidentally the future leaders of Israel a bunch of fishermen. Jesus healed and saved a leper in chapter 5, the lowest of the low, the most rejected of society. Jesus healed and forgave a paralyzed man who would have been thought to be under the judgment of God by virtue of his affliction. Jesus called and saved a ruthless tax collector named Levi who would be the author of the first record of the birth of Jesus Christ known by his Greek name Matthew. He healed a Roman soldier's slave in Luke chapter 6 proving that Jesus loves Romans also by the way. And then as you walk through Luke's gospel, it's just filled with the accounts of love and compassion that Jesus had for women considered a low member of society. And who becomes, for the moment, the lead Christian missionary to minister to those worshiping in the temple who are waiting for Messiah? Who becomes the voice of God? 
a 100-year-old woman who's lost everything else that this life has to offer. I don't know about you, but as I go through thinking about Anna, I find her as singularly focused as anyone as I've, I've ever seen. Now, have you seen the amazing character quality of Anna? Have you, did you catch it? The, the woman who's lost all earthly blessings, who in the eyes of the world is a nobody, what's the character quality? What have you seen? What we've seen is that she's fine with being nobody. She's okay with it. She's at peace with that. She's not trying to seek accolades. She's not looking for compliments. She's not seeking the approval of others. She's not seeking affirmation. She's not seeking verification. She's not seeking validation. She is as singularly focused as any individual you'll find in all the scriptures. Anna was delighted to be nobody. And while she was being a nobody, she engaged in her five true loves, in, in the word of God, in the worship and song, in prayer, in Christ, and in those who need Christ. Listen, that's not a bad way to live while you're waiting on the Lord, is it? It's not a bad way to live. She lost her earthly family, her earthly future, her earthly reputation, but she countered it with her loves of the word of God, of worship and song, of prayer and Christ and those who need Christ. So those are her losses and her loves. And there's just one lesson from Anna. And I'm going to borrow from James chapter 1, verse 9. The lesson from Anna is, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What a paradox. How can the lowly, the one in humble circumstances, boast in his exaltation, boast in all that he has, well, this is supposed to be normal. This is a normal thing. This is a routine part of being a Christian that while you're in humble circumstances, you smile because your future is secured because you've already won. This is what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Anna had lost everything from an earthly standpoint, and yet she rejoiced in the Lord. Because also, although she lost an earthly family, through Christ she has gained a heavenly family. Although she lost an earthly future, through Christ she's part of a glorious future kingdom. And although she lost an earthly reputation, through Christ I think we would agree that Anna is one of the most famous Christians, one of the most famous believers in all of history. Anna will never be forgotten. I don't think at the age of 100... When she came upon baby Jesus, that she could ever imagine that countless millions of believers for the next 2,000 years would celebrate her life. Anna will never be forgotten. And by the way, you will never be forgotten. You will never be forgotten. Everything that you have waited for, everything you've ever lost in the Lord will be restored. Jesus promised this using math that the third grader can understand. Matthew 19, verse 25, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Her dad's name was Phanuel. Phanuel means the face of God. And here in Luke 2, Anna has just seen the face of God, and even now, she is before the face of God. She is before Phanuel, the face of God. I just find it wonderful that she delighted to be a nobody, 
And now she is a star in the kingdom of God. She's absolutely a star. So while you wait, if the Lord has placed you in the position to be lowly, to be less, to be under, to be small, delight in it. Let it be okay. Just let it be okay. Our Father, it's my prayer that for those who are in the position of humility and humiliation right now, that you would let them find comfort and solace in that position to boast in their exaltation as we see in James 1 that the lowly can do. And we pray for the lessons from Anna, Lord, that, that in that lowly time, we would love the word of God, that we would love to worship in song, that we would love to pray, and certainly we would love Christ, and that we would have a love for those who need Christ. That is a life well lived. That's a life worth boasting about in the Lord. And so I pray for all who are here tonight, whatever they may be waiting upon, help them to find comfort in those five loves. Help them to renew their desire to let it be okay to be lowly, to give into it, to be fine with it, and to trust you that as you promised through the Apostle Peter, that we, if we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we will be exalted at the proper time. And so help us to humble ourselves before you, to let it be okay to be downtrodden, to be low, to be small. Because you are great, and you are mighty, and you are big, and you have all the glory, and you will protect us and give us of your glory in the age to come. Comfort those in need of comfort. Encourage those in need of encouragement. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.